You are tuned in to episode eight of Sound Science and Dub Lab Radio with me, your host, Dr. Yuanze Pierce. On this show, I talk about science and music with the help of those in the know while playing tunes from all the nooks and crannies of the music world. So how are you, dear listeners? I hope that you are well. I can't believe that we are almost halfway through the year. It makes me feel very weird. But nonetheless, I've had a good month so far and I hope you have too. So today's show is all about how music elicits emotion. It's a big topic that I'll keep coming back to, but in this hour, I'm going to talk about how the brain's ability to make predictions about what we hear might explain how musical sounds become rewarding. I've also got Dr. Soph back on the show, psychologist extraordinaire and someone who is well ingrained into the very depths of my inner circle, and she'll be talking to me all about emotion. So if you like the sound of all of that, stay tuned. Have you ever been at an event where there's music playing and you're standing there hearing the sounds and thinking, meh, whatever, or even this is the worst thing I've ever heard? Then you look across the room and see someone else having the time of their lives, moving with almost violent enthusiasm to the track, hands above head, heels right into the floor with purpose and pleasure, hips going everywhere, possessed by some unseen entity. Last week, I was at a party and not particularly enjoying the music, to be honest, but in the crowd in front of me was this guy going for it really hard. And I turned to my friend and I was just like, I wish I could hear what he's hearing. And I made a point of actually stopping and listening to the music and trying to allow my body to respond in the same way. And it just wasn't doing it for me. But the same could be said for me. I've often been on dance floors on my own and listening to a song which fills me up until I'm almost boiling over simply because there's a cowbell in it or a particular bass rhythm or because the vocals hit a certain pitch. There are many scientific explanations for why we're moved by music. Listening to music that was played a lot during an important period in our life again can trigger a deeply nostalgic emotional response. In the Science of Rhythm episode a few months ago, I talked about how as humans we have the capacity and inclination to synchronize our body movements to an external rhythmic stimuli, which is why we dance to music, which makes us feel good. Music is also a language of emotion that some people feel more comfortable using to express how they feel. There's also the idea of emotional contagion, which describes a phenomenon where perceiving an emotion can actually sometimes induce the same emotion, like watching a DJ enjoying their own set, or a musician playing an instrument, and finally musical anticipation, which is what I'm going to talk about today. The question of how musical sounds can have such profound emotional and rewarding effects has been a topic of interest throughout generations. At a very basic level, listening to music involves tracking a series of sound events over time. Because humans are really good at pattern recognition, temporal predictions are constantly generated, creating a sense of anticipation. But how does this actually lead to musical pleasure? Well, scientists at Rotman Research Institute, Vanderbilt University and McGill University put their heads together and published a paper in Cell Press in 2015 explaining why. So why do we love music? 
While playing and listening to music are fundamental human behaviours that have existed as far back as the prehistoric era. However, it's been hard to study because listening to music is such an abstract and subjective experience. However, neurological imaging has helped us to quantify the biological processes that make music enjoyable. And what scientists have begun to understand is that there's an interaction between the sensory, cognitive and emotional systems. So let's start with reward predictions and the brain and the role of these predictions in music. So one of the main goals of the brain is to predict rewarding events. Dopamine, a chemical in the brain associated with reward, which you may have heard of before, is secreted from neurons in a part of the brain called the midbrain. And this signals potential upcoming rewards, which allow the anticipation of and motivation to receive desirable outcomes. So this neural activity can occur in response to single events, or can ramp up as you progressively move through stages marking approach to rewards. Dopamine cells are thought to encode the degree to which an outcome matches expectations. This means that the strongest dopamine response occurs when the outcome is actually better than predicted, resulting in a positive prediction error signal that helps to fine tune future predictions. When it comes to things like food and sex, which are crucial for survival, this concept of dopamine being released in a way that facilitates a better than expected experience is quite easy to understand. But some rewards like music can take more abstract forms where better than expected is actually highly subjective and requires the integration of individualized processes in the brain shaped by previous personal experiences. Nonetheless, music pleasure is thought to rely on generation of expectations, anticipation of their development and outcome, and violation or confirmation of those predictions. As I've already mentioned, music generates a continuous stream of expectation and anticipation about what's coming next. This expectation can come from explicit knowledge we have about how a familiar piece of music will unfold, like for example a song you've grown up with, and an implicit understanding of the rules of music based on our previous experience, which is based in society, culture and or musical training. So this theory kind of demystifies why pop music is so popular, for example. When composing music, musicians often take advantage of an understanding of these expectations. For example, a composer might take advantage of the fact that in the West, melodic arches tend to rise in the beginning and fall towards the end. By manipulating the speed at which this happens, the composer can actually increase the amount of anticipation that the listener will experience, and this can result in greater reward. So you may or may not have spotted a slight contradiction here. What I've said so far is that the brain is essentially a prediction machine and musical pleasure is linked to the fulfillment of our expectation, but the greatest musical pleasure, so tracks that we really, really love, are pleasurable because they exceed our expectations, they're better than expected, which goes against what we know about musical pleasure being derived from making predictions that are fulfilled by reality. It's all to do with the fact that what we learn about music from experience is only stored partially in the brain, whether implicit or explicit. These patchy representations in the brain mean that the first time we hear music, any aspect of it can cause a pleasurable prediction error due to some acceptable degree of variance relative to what we expect. 
Because our stored representations are incomplete, we can continue to produce positive prediction errors even after hearing the piece several times. So how much prediction is too much? There's a core tension between familiarity and uncertainty when it comes to musical pleasure. Unfamiliar music is appreciated more after the first time it's heard. At this point, implicit familiarity provides an enhanced ability to predict how the music will unfold, but there is enough uncertainty to generate positive prediction errors. Based on this prediction model, with enough repetitions, explicit knowledge of the overall structure, uh, for example, melody and chord progression, and micro-level features like variations in timing and ornamentation, removes the possibility of significant positive prediction errors, resulting in an absence of dopamine release and loss of interest or motivation to hear more. One thing I would note is that there are other models for why music is pleasurable, including the one I mentioned at the beginning about nostalgia. With nostalgia, it's actually the complete opposite, which is that musical pleasure is derived from an extreme familiarity to a musical piece. So that's something to bear in mind. There's also evidence to suggest that even music that you've never heard before can be too predictable and result in a lack of musical pleasure. For example, simple songs that are designed for children might amuse them over and over again, but for a parent listening, they may get bored after just the first listen, even if they've never heard it before. By contrast, music that is too far from a person's implicit understanding may provide little desire for them to listen to it again. The key to music's sustained appeal is a constant interplay between adherence and deviation from typical convention to allow some level of predictability combined with uncertainty in achieving resolution. More complex music is often able to achieve this because it's difficult to have a precise explicit template for all the features of a piece. So I've been talking a lot about predictions, but I haven't said much about brain anatomy. So network analysis from brain imaging studies have identified parts of the brain that give rise to these predictions. These studies suggest that dopaminergic pathways, which I talked about at the beginning of the show, work together with regions in the cortex involved in higher functions to give rise to pleasure. These include areas of the brain involved in auditory perception, like the auditory cortices, areas involved in high-level temporal sequencing, like the inferior frontal gyri, and areas of the brain involved in emotional processing, like the amygdala. So how are these areas relevant? Well, the auditory cortices are thought to not only play an important role in a wide range of auditory processes that relate to music, but are also thought to store templates of sound events that we've accumulated over time. This is why different people like different music. Everyone has their own unique set of musical templates, depending on the musical sounds that they've been exposed to throughout their life. These experiences will vary within cultures, age brackets, social groups and other demographic groups. And going back to my little story about the dancing man at the start of the show, this explains why I couldn't understand what was so joyous about the music. So moving on to the next area, the inferior frontal gyri. To appreciate music, you have to recognize the underlying structure and form predictions. The ability to process the structure of a piece of music has been linked to this region. Connectivity between this region, where high-level structural analysis of music takes place, and the auditory cortex, which is the home of previously stored templates of music, is really important when it comes to musical pleasure. In fact, a condition known as amusia, or you may know it as tone deafness, 
shows that there is a lack of connectivity between these two areas. People with amusia have deficits in music perception and are thought to enjoy music less as it's more difficult to make predictions. And finally, the amygdala, which together with the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and orbitofrontal cortex, sorry, a bit of a mouthful, make up the limbic system, which is involved in emotional processing, especially when it comes to reward and estimating something's worth. Through their interactions with the nucleus accumbens, these regions may be assessing the value of incoming sounds and assigning reward-related value to the music. As a side note, I just want to mention that the dopaminergic system, although it can explain a lot of the pleasure associated with music that we experience, isn't the whole picture. Research has shown that there are actually crucial interactions between the dopaminergic system and the opioid system, which controls pain, reward, and is central in heroin addiction. And that's it. That's about everything I know about prediction in the brain. If you'd like to have a peek at the original paper, just hit me up on Instagram at soundsciencepodcasts or soundsciencepodcast at gmail.com and I'll happily send you a copy of the paper. So we're almost at the end of the show, but in many ways, I've saved the best till last. Coming up after this is my interview with Dr. Soph. Stay tuned. music and emotion and why we feel so much when we listen to various types of music. So yeah. let's start by just talking a little bit about, you know, emotion and how that syncs music. Yeah, perfect, because um, I think you were talking about one of the main reasons that we feel when we're listening to music, and you were talking about repetition, predictability of music, and how when our brain correctly predicts what's going to happen next, we get this amazing burst of dopamine, you know, that feel-good hormone that normally you get from dancing, having sex, eating chocolate. Other reasons that we feel linked to the fact that and feel really emotional is that we also feel oxytocin. So, you know, the hormone that's linked to feeling loving or close to other people. We get serotonin, we get endorphins, all these really lovely internal hormones and chemicals. And so what I want to talk about is other reasons why we feel emotion when we listen to music. So the positive effects of music are so well known now that it's actually used as therapy. So did you know, for example, music therapy is used to reduce stress, anxiety, to help people prep for operations, to lower blood pressure, and even is used to increase well-being and a sense of identity in people with Alzheimer's disease. So I thought I'd talk about music as a language of emotion, empathy, and memories. How does that sound? That sounds amazing. Perfect. Okay, so... There are many theories about why we feel emotion. And so I'll just kind of talk through a few of them. So the first one that separates what you've been saying is that we feel emotions when we're listening to music. As music is a language of emotion, you know, think about it. It sounds like an expressive human. You have the highs, you have the lows, you have sounds that sound like someone stamping off in the opposite direction after an argument. Yeah. You know, <laughs> think about a conversation with someone you had recently who was feeling emotional. You know, if they were sad, they may speak slowly and quietly. If they were excited, they may speed up, become more high pitched. 
And like I said, if they're angry, maybe they're shouting. And you can just see each aspect of this emotion in the music that you hear. So the way that you hear that language will be associated with your environment and the way that people express emotion within your culture. Um, but also how you, I suppose, experience music really early on. So for example, if you had a caregiver who sung you a lovely lullaby, you will associate those soft, soothing sounds with care. So that's kind of the first thing. We um, interpret emotion right. from music because it's like a language. But the second thing is we don't just interpret or sense that emotion, we feel it. And why is that? And a lot of the research that looks into this talks about empathy and mirror neurons. And I'm sure you know way more about mirror neurons than I do. Well, I can give you a personal neuroscience version of it. So mirror neurons are the brain cells that we have that allow us to mimic other people's behavior in our heads. So for example, if we see someone hurt, hurt themselves, we often win. Have you noticed that you do that? You know, you see someone stop their toe and you go, ooh. Exactly. Or when that when clothes and it makes you feel really, really cold and really cold. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's because the part of your brain associated with stubbing your toe, it lights up in the same way as, as it would if you were actually doing it. So, same as when you talk. So, say you were talking to me and I could see you, I think. Mm-hmm. When you're talking, the part of my brain for speech-related movement would also light up. So it's as if I'm mimicking what you are saying, but inside my own head. That's really amazing, and it's making me think about the beginning of the show. I use the example of when you look at DJ playing set and they're really yeah. into it. So that refers to that, doesn't it? It's exactly the same. So I'll talk about that in a second. It's exactly the same. So if you're talking to me, I'm mimicking. It's almost as if I'm saying those words inside my head. And the reason they think this happens is because this helps me understand you and what you are trying to convey. So in music, it's the same, whether someone's singing or you're seeing the DJ bouncing around, if they're singing, the motor part of my brain related to speech will light up as if I am singing those words. If we see the DJs really into it, the motor part of our brain linked to the movements that they're doing, they're lighting up as if we're doing that same movement. And it's like we want to mimic the people making the music we want to move we want to sing along and this means we start to feel the things the person who is making the music seems to be feeling so we start to feel into the music as our emotion centers are activated that is absolutely fascinating oh my god i love the brain it's just so i love the brain as well i'm as a psychologist i love the brain most of the time and then sometimes i'm like damn you brain <laughs> why do you make our lives so complicated but yes when it comes to music i totally agree it's so fascinating so for example this is why you can curate a list of music that enhances or helps how you manage how you feel so you know for example if you're going for a run and you want something that's going to really give you that boost you may listen to a kind of music where the person who's put it together has put in a lot of energy mm-hmm. because you start hearing it and then your brain starts creating you know setting off all these empathic processes and you're like wow i feel alive yeah which is why my girl go run it is so effective 
challenges. <laughs> no, exactly. So it's really interesting because mirror neurons are also linked to your memory. So if I was to see you pick up a cup of coffee, I would have the mirror neurons activating as if I was picking up a cup of coffee, but also I would remember a time that I did that. Can you see how one action of someone else suddenly links to me feeling empathy for your action, but remembering the last time I did it? So this is again the same with music, okay? So I hear the music, it makes me feel like I'm in a similar mood to the music, I can feel it, but also now I'm remembering a time when I actually felt that way. Oh, so it's double, it's double whammy, feeling bad. Double whammy, double whammy, exactly. And because music isn't just an auditory experience, you know, we feel it in our bodies. You know, I've already talked about all these parts of our motor cortex being activated. So we feel it in our muscles. So it's this whole embodied experience. So it's, it's just fascinating. And finally, I just want to talk about memory. Yeah. Because we kind of segued onto it quite nicely. <laughs> it's not my first rodeo. I already know what I was going to say. Um, when you hear music, you often remember something. Music often takes us back to a specific place and a specific time. I'm sure you can think of some songs that make you feel nostalgic. Oh, yeah. So what people talk about in terms of memory linked to music is mainly nostalgia. So we've talked, for example, that music can make you feel happy, it can make you feel empathic, it can make you feel the sadness of someone else. But actually, in terms of research, nostalgia is the thing we talk about the most. So I want to focus on the years of being 12 to 22. You know, these are your most formative years. (laughs) Yeah, they actually call this the reminiscence bump, which is so interesting. The reminiscence bump is the idea that all memories associated with between the ages of 12 and 22 are the ones that we remember most strongly. But in terms of music, one of the reasons we feel emotion so strongly when we hear it is because of the memories we've made that are associated with music. And I want to talk about those formative years because, as I said, this is the music that kind of shapes us the most. Even if you consider yourself really kind of mature and sophisticated now, you'll notice that you'll hear the beginning riff of a song that you knew of when you were a teenager, a few early bars, and suddenly you're back there in your teenage years, you're feeling all of these emotions and experiences and nostalgia. The part of your brain where you store memories of your past is in the medial prefrontal cortex, this bit behind your forehead. And that's the same place that you store the link between music memory and your emotion. So why is it that music from our teenage years elicits such strong emotion? Well, think about those years. It tends to be the first time in your life where you're trying on your own version of your identity. You know, you're you're trying on a little bit of someone else's identity, then another person's, then another's. You're finding out what you like. You're aligning yourself with other people. You're becoming part of bigger groups. You're creating a feeling of belonging. So firstly, when you're listening to music, you're having these really strong emotional uh, experiences that perhaps you haven't had before. So you're creating this sense of identity. At the same time, you have this huge hormonal explosion and your brain is rewiring. So in simple terms, teenage years, you're having your first breakups, you're studying, you're maybe stressed, you're in a group of friends, you're partying, listening to music. Everyone's teenage years have a soundtrack. And you've already talked about where dopamine comes from, these feel-good hormones that make you feel great. Right. But imagine what you've talked about plus 
the hormonal explosion, the sexual explosion, the brain rewiring, the empathy I've talked about, and suddenly you're listening to music. It's like the most intense emotional experience of your life, and it's so strongly encoded into your brain that as an adult, when you hear music, part of the emotional response is this reactivation of these early memories that are really strongly encoded. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense and actually makes me think a little bit about how you don't really have much in when you're born. So for us being 90s, it's born in the 80s, but like having a lot of exposure to music in the 90s, feeling less guilty about what I get up to behind closed doors now and then. Oh my word, absolutely, because you know, that ties really just off two fun, really fun facts. Well, I mean, fun facts. One is um, that Spotify have looked at what people listen to, right? Because we might tell people as we get older, um, I like this kind of music, and it really shapes who you align yourself with. And actually, Spotify has shown that, for example, each song tends to be listened to the most by the people who heard it first when they were in their, like, well, for men when they were 14 and for women when they're 12 to 14. Isn't that interesting? So we say we like a type of music, <laughs> but we go back to these songs that seem to be from that 12 to 14 year old um, phase. And the other thing that I think is fascinating is the reason that AI, al- you know, these AI algorithms, for example, on Spotify, Pandora, you know, that they suggest what music you should listen to. Yeah. You notice how they, they they might kind of get it, but they often don't quite get it right? Yeah. The reason is because they can't, so AI, they process the kind of aesthetic aspect of the music. Right. So the things that, um, to do with the structure of it. But AI can't possibly know which memories you had from your teenage years. They can't possibly know what meaning you associate with the music that you listen to. So the AI lists tend to be predicted by structure, taste, for example, but they can't tell what's going to be your favorite, the thing that's going to make you emote the most because it doesn't know what you listen to the most when you're a teenager. This would explain why my Discover Weekly is actually <laughs> 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 Wow. Yeah, yeah. My Discover Weekly is sometimes though makes me feel a bit ashamed because it is kind of linked to the stuff that I listen to maybe when I was a teenager. <laughs> 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 Not to say, there is no end to your knowledge. I feel like I can <laughs> so many different topics with you and learn so much. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Let's talk again soon. Speak soon. Yay! Okay, bye, Wendy. And bye. Yeah. So that's the end of the show. Thank you so much for tuning in to Sound Science on Dub Lab Radio. I will leave you with just this one last thing, which is if you haven't done it, please go on the Dub Lab website and become a sustaining member. DubLab needs your support. During the 2019 membership drive, we are looking for support um, for as little as five pounds, five dollars, five pounds, five dollars a month. And that will really support DubLab's commitment to enriching our community like they've been doing for 20 years. Also, I would like to dedicate this episode to my big brother, whose birthday is on the 30th of May, and Dr. Sophie's birthday is on the 27th of May. Happy birthday and happy birthday.